Affleck makes Charlie simultaneously lazy, acute, hard-nosed, and gentle. And the timing in his line delivery is phenomenal. The great Ty Burr. Arguably my favorite film critic from Ty Burr's watch list, which Chris Cody finds a little pompous, but I'm telling you, it's a great read. He's got some great stories about Ben Affleck. The Tender Bar is one of the films that we're reviewing this week. It is, in fact, our featured review. Uh, it's available right now on Amazon Prime. Good news, Cody did watch it. Also, Swan Song, which is available on Apple Plus. Excellent film from the great Mahershala Ali. And The Lost Daughter, Olivia Coleman stars. That film is available on Netflix. That's the new. The old is Ted. That's right, 10th anniversary of Ted. How about A Talking Bear, played by Seth MacFarlane? Pretty funny movie. I enjoyed it. We'll talk about it. And as far as the wild card is concerned, that's right. At long last, my top 10 films of 2021. It's always something I take a lot of pride in. I know people I hope look forward to it. So I'll give you my top 10 movies of 2021. I know we're now January 13th, but it takes a little week and a half here because a lot of overlap of the movies. And by the way, a couple of films I still haven't seen. Next week, I'm going to review The Tragedy of Macbeth, which is available on Apple Plus January 14th. Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand, Joel Cohn. That might be a top 10 movie. Who knows? But I'm going top 10 right now, and we'll go from there. Cody, how are we feeling? COVID uh, impacted you, your wife, your daughter. Are we back to full health? I'm feeling great. I got to watch a movie. I'm just, I'm so excited for that. And we got a new year of new fresh start. You got your, your old top 10, but you're starting your new one. You know, I just like, what a time for year in movies. It is awesome. And by the way, I didn't even mention, I slept on the, the big wild card here, Chris Mundy. He's the showrunner for Ozark, right? People love Ozark. New season coming out. The great Jason Bateman, Laura Lynn. We're going to talk to the showrunner. Chris Mundy, cannot wait to talk to him, get his thoughts on the new season of Ozark. Normally we go with the new reviews, and then we go the old and the wild card, all the rest of it. But I kind of want to start on a morbid note. Death, unfortunately, is a pretty popular topic. Last week, how many people died, Chris? Last week, we had Betty White, John Madden, which we talked about. We also had Dan Reeves from the NFL. So that was like, you know, they say it comes in threes. Yeah, so was last more week. death coming in threes. Sidney Poitier, the first great black actor. The guy won the Academy Award for Lilies in the Field. 1967, one of the all-time heavyweight years by an actor. To serve with love, guess who's coming to dinner? Huge box office hit. Best Picture nominee, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn. And then In the Heat of the Night, which I think is the best of the three. Rod Steiger won an Oscar for Best Actor. All came out in 1967. That solidified Sidney Poitier as the biggest box office, most popular actor in America. He unfortunately passed away and all I had to tweet that day was they call me Mr. Tibbs <laughs> of course it's a mortal line in the film in the heat of the night great actor his backstory is fascinating uh, grew up in the Bahamas went to New York wanted to be a stage actor didn't so much face racism I'm sure he did but one of the people there said you got to lose the accent you sound like a Bahamian actor okay fine I'll lose the accent he comes back and it was guns blazing from there obviously an incredible actor uh, righteous commanding screen presence it's a shame there's only been ever two actors who are African-American who win Best Actor, Sidney Poitier and Denzel Washington. When Denzel won for Training Day, Poitier got an honorary Oscar that year as well. I believe it was 38 years later, 1963, he won for Lilies in the Field. Denzel won for Training Day in 01. So that was obviously a great moment to see Poitier recognized there. The other one all of our audience will know is Bob Saget, the great comedian who had never really fit. The guy was on Full House as Danny Tanner, America's Funniest Home Videos, which made an art format of guys getting hit in the gonads. <laughs> but he was a great comedian. If you asked anybody, like, dude, Saget is raunchy. Like, he is offensive. Like, have you ever seen the, the movie The Aristocrats, which is a bunch of comedians telling a dirty joke? They go, Saget's as dirty as it gets. So it was always funny. He was known as Danny Tanner, of course, doting father to the Olsen twins, but also just a ruthlessly profane and funny comic, dead at the age of 65. That's my sitcom dad. I mean, that is just my sweet spot, full house, growing up, watching it. Um, that one, you know, I've had a few celebrity deaths that really actually punched me in the stomach, and that was one of them. Um, he, I'm actually, you know, not to be this guy, but we, like, met him at the studio, nice. and he was just so genuinely nice. Like, Stu Gatz made him, we always made fun of Stu Gatz for making him do a video to his daughters, but apparently, like, years later, they, he would, like, reach out to Stu Gatz, hey, how are your daughters doing? And that is, like, Stu Gatz is not, like, you know, an A-list, so, you know, if he's doing that with Stu Gatz, you heard a lot of stuff about, because when people die, you always hear he's the nicest guy, but about Bob Saget that seems to be like just genuinely nice along with a raunchy comedy act like that is just the perfect combination right there I can't believe it's like Adnan it's, it's like Adnan cool. the nicest guy ever but he also works blue it's like when you have that kind of balance as a person it's the kind of guy I want to hang out with it's a perfect way to bring it full circle I'm very Saget-esque in my public persona and then right. the fact I have an undercurrent of pervert as Dan Levitard once said of me um Unfortunately, past I once sucked dick for Coke. <laughs> Thank you. They were bringing up dirty work. When people are like, "Wait, what movie did you do?" 
dirty work. I believe the exact line is I suck cock for crack. And well, I no. I'm sorry, this is the wrong meeting. I'm I'm talking about half baked. In half baked, he shows up oh, at some like Jesus. I said dirty at, work. At, at some at some he I think it's I suck dick for coke. We'll have to look it up. We'll have to <laughs> We'll have to get the right uh, <laughs> Let's hope this is gonna be the subject of the podcast heading this year, okay? Oh, In honor of Bud. Not sure Cody can pull away that away. Oh, God. Uh, and one more, if you'll recall, I recently raved about The Jinx, which is a six-part HBO series that came out a few years ago about Robert Durst, and it's incredible, and I reviewed it, gave it for me beliefs. Um, I don't want to spoil it now for you, but Robert Durst, you should watch The Jinx, no matter what, even if you know what happened. And you should know what happened, because the guy just died, and you will know what happened, because you see what all the obituaries about him. But the fact that that documentary ends with him saying, what have I done? We talked to James Andrew Miller, of course, wrote the HBO book. He raved about the documentary, what Andrew Jarecki did. He just at the age of 78. Okay, I'll spoil it. Because of the documentary, he gives up the fact on a hot mic that he admits that he killed these people. <laughs> and they then use that documentary's evidence. Andrew Jarecki, character witness, the guy got in prison. He got away with three murders, ended up being convicted of one he served six months. He just died at the age of 78. Imagine, Chris, you lived your whole life. You've murdered several people. You end up fessing up on a documentary unwittingly. You served prison six months and then died. Like, pretty, pretty, got it pretty easy. I mean, if, if you're going to be just be in prison, you might as well. He's done. Robert Durst, <laughs> Bob Saget, Sidney Poitier, quite the trio. They say death comes in threes. One other story about Bob Saget. You know how much I love Gary Shandling. The great Judd Apatow documentary, The Zen Dyers of Gary Shandling. Again, to Chris's point about Bob showing a different side of himself, he gets emotional and choked up. He said, I was very close to Gary, but I was close to Brad Gray, who was Shandling's agent. And he goes, when they had that falling out, it was almost like Gary wouldn't talk to me anymore because – like, I wouldn't take his side. He was like, listen, dude, like, you're a close friend of mine. Brad is my agent and a close friend. Why can't I be friends with both? But he goes, it always really, really upset me that Gary kind of just cast me aside, and I wish I could have made it up to him. I wish I could have said I'm sorry. Like, I'm not picking sides. So it was, there's a lot to Bob Saget more than you realize. He's a lot more than just Danny Tanner. But obviously, rest in peace to him and his family. Very, very sad news coming. He had just tweeted, I think, the night before. He had done some stand-up. About Betty White. Night. Like, I think yeah. he gave a really nice thing. I said a bunch of stuff about Betty White, and it's just yeah. terrible. It's sad. All right, let's do the top 10 list. Every year, this is how we do. Number one, and you know, let's have to do number one. Let's go number 10 to one, right? Build up the build mm -hmm. up the drama, as they say. Number 10, it's a must-have at least one movie for my beloved gangster genre, so what's better than the OG and David Chase? The prequel to The Sopranos, The Many Saints of Newark, Alessandro Novolo, a.k.a. The Brother from Face Off. Bye, bro. Finally has a lead role to sink his teeth into, and Michael Gandolfini pays homage to his sweet generee father, of course, the great James Gandolfini. Vera Farmiga as the haranguing Livia Soprano steals the show, even if Corey Stoll's Uncle Junior gives the movie its big twist. The Many Saints of Newark is number 10. All right, so I've seen that one. I want to play this game. How many of these movies have I seen? So I'm one yep. for one. I'm thinking yep. I'm going to have seen three tops. I, I encourage you to chime in after every review. <laughs> Number nine is Encounter. Riz Ahmed, the first Muslim actor to ever be nominated for Best Actor at the Academy Awards, follows up the sound of metal with this father and son sci-fi curiosity. You have a sense the filmmakers are making up the story as they go along, but Ahmed's intensity and pathos are put to good use as a loving father who may not even realize he's lost his mind. Number nine still, is Encounter. We're still at one. Number eight is Nobody. Got to have at least one action movie on my list. It comes from the actor you least expect it from. Better Call Saul's Bob Odenkirk. A modern-day Charles Bronson turned Michael Douglas and falling down. Odenkirk's lead isn't going to take it anymore, and the result is a propulsive, highly entertaining shoot-em-up. Still at one. Number seven, Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical Before Hamilton is the second musical, which makes my list, In the Heights, a soaring ode to Washington Heights, the Bronx neighborhood populated by Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. It's about the immigrant experience and travails that all minorities can relate to. As usual for Miranda, the songs and wordplay are awfully impressive, along with the skill of director John M. Chu. Does an excellent job directing this work. I'll let you know if I've seen one. Fair enough. Number six, <laughs> Mass. This is the kind of movie independent film connoisseurs seek out and relish. Two sets of parents meet to deal with their grief. One of their children has been murdered by the other. Astute about the nature of grief and topical in the wake of school shootings, there are four powerhouse performances on display, including cinephile guest with piercing blue eyes, oh. Jason Isaacs. Oh, so much charm. I've, I've yet to get over all the charm that guy gave. One of our best guests we've had here on cinephile. <laughs> Number five, Muhammad Ali by Ken Burns. Rumble, young man, rumble. 
Leave it to the finest documentarian alive in Ken Burns to unearth more fertile material about the most analyzed and scrutinized athlete of the 20th century. Ali has all the sports stuff covered, shaking up the world against Sonny Liston, the rumble in the jungle, the thrill in Manila, but also the third heavyweight fight against Spinks in 78 and the torture of Holmes and Burbick. But Ali really hits home in the personal tales of wives and daughters, a magnanimous, charitable man who is also a relentless womanizer, eventually pursuing redemption through his latter stages as a devout Muslim and an ambassador for all of mankind. Ali from Ken Burns. Mm, not sure how I feel about documentaries being considered a movie. This seems like two different things. We got one gangster movie, we got one action movie, we got one documentary. We're spreading it <laughs> around right, here, okay? Right, all right, all right. Number four. The end of the year sees a crush of awards bait, but this time, famed director swung and missed. The incomparable Paul Thomas Anderson, one of my favorites, made the aimless and self-indulgent licorice pizza, while Guillermo del Toro followed up his Oscar-winning masterpiece, The Shape of Water, with the gorgeous but clunky Nightmare Alley. So leave it to that old war horse and close friend of Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, to bring the lumber. Delayed a year due to COVID, his reimagining of the best picture winner from 60 years ago, West Side Story is rapturous, luscious, big screen entertainment. With his usual cinematographer, the ace Janusz Kaminski, the two-time Oscar-winning filmmaker keeps his camera static to allow us to enjoy the sights and sounds on display. The dazzling choreography and passionate, swooning performances from Golden Globe Award winners Rachel Zegler and Ariana DeBose. It's a throwback to old-school filmmaking, but also a timely story. More racially aware, less stereotypes, but still a heartfelt ode to Romeo and Juliet. Number four, West Side Story. Still at one. Number three, it's a shame that Academy Award-winning filmmaker Tom McCarthy gives Matt Damon the role of a lifetime, and it barely caused a ripple. Stillwater earned a standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival but was largely ignored in America upon its debut in July. See it for Damon-going Gary Cooper, stoic, imbued with a sense of decency, but also the deeply flawed sense of justice. It's a busy plot, but character-rich depictions from McCarthy, who made Spotlight, win-win, and the station agent should be savored. Number three, Stillwater. Number two. Kenneth Branagh's joyous and poignant ode to his childhood, Belfast, is a reminder that while every story may have been told, including a come-of-age story set in Ireland during Protestant Catholic fighting, it's the way that the story is told that makes all the difference. The best cast of the year, Ciara and Hines, Judy Dench as the doting grandparents, Jamie Dornan, Katrina Balfe as the parents struggling to make ends meet, and Jude Hill as the precocious young lead. It's a heartfelt story. Number two, Belfast. And the best picture of the year, Farhadi does it again. Another riveting rumination on the nature of truth and a morality play on a prisoner with good intentions doomed to a potentially ruinous tale. Where so many filmmakers start out promising and falter, the Iranian master sticks the landing with a no-perfect conclusion. It's the Russian doll of filmmakers, and it's a brilliant film. I've seen it twice, and it is remarkable. Number one, a hero from Oscar Farhadi, former guest here in Cinephile. There is your top ten of the year. It's a good list. I, I saw one of them. I started, You came out hot. You gave me the first one, so I'm like, all right, there's got to be a couple more in here. And man, But yeah, that, those are... I remember like you, you reviewed most of those, and that was I thought maybe Sing Two had a chance for number one, yeah. but I was like, I guess it's a Farhadi. I try to get every uh, like an animated film in there. If I had to, maybe I go with Luca. If you recall, I did review that. The one that might win the Oscar is Mitchell versus the Machines. Your daughter's probably a little young for it. I think it's more like nine, ten yeah. year olds. But whatever, we're gonna do our Oscar recap later on. There is your top ten. I had texted Chris. I'd also do a bottom three. I couldn't really do it except for the one that really stood out to me, which was the worst movie I saw all year. That is the Jesus Rules. Witless and unnecessary, a spin-off of The Big Lebowski, John Turturro's Labor of Love, he stars, wrote, produced, and directed, simply ends up being laborious. The wonderful Bobby Cannavale stranded as is much of the cast. The worst film of the year. That Jesus is rolls. so funny because that was when we were still like doing like little practice pods before we yeah. started together. And I watched that. That was like my first film. I was like, oh, shit, I got to come on Adnan's podcast now and give her a review of it. And I just and that's the worst one of the I love that the film that you just threw out like, hey, we're going to do a practice pod. Watch the Jesus rolls. And that was your lead. Like it just it's yeah. fitting. It's just and I remember afterwards you were like, yeah, it wasn't bad. I'm like, I was I like, hate yeah, it. decent. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh, there's some good names. Kind of alley. This guy yeah. was weird. A lot of we odd sex scenes. Yeah, definitely. There is some odd menage a trois. Um, <laughs> as I mentioned, I've got to see The Tragedy of Macbeth, Denzel's new film that comes out tomorrow. The documentary slash animated feature called Flea, it's supposed to be amazing, and a movie from Japan called Drive My Car. It just won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film. So I'll get around to those. I know someone's saying, well, how'd you not include those? Well, you know what? We don't got screeners. It's a little tough right now. i got to go to the movies, pay my $37. So that's how it goes. So now the, we'll do the new the movie. Ten, the, the tender bar did not make your top 10. 
No, and let's get into the tender bar, which I did like. Available on Amazon Prime. Ben Affleck gives one of his very best performances as a kind, loving uncle who runs a bar which his nephew frequents looking for life lessons. The movie is directed by George Clooney, who does absolutely nothing visually interesting in this adaptation of a beloved memoir by J.R. Moringer. There's nothing genuinely unique about the story. Boy overcomes working class Long Island to attend Yale one day. Deadbeat dad is an alcoholic who abandoned his wife and son, now a DJ in the city. He falls in love with a woman. It's on again. It's off again. But Christopher Lloyd, Dr. Emmett Brown himself, offers sturdy supporting assistance, including one scene where his flatulence is unstoppable, even as he attempts to deny he's the guilty party. Whoever smelt it, dealt it. See it for Affleck, though, as he's likely to receive a Best Supporting Actor nomination for a role that is tailor-made for his talents. I give the tender bar two and a half Maple Leafs. More importantly, Chris saw it. I want your reaction. I was into it. I'm with you. I I enjoyed it. I didn't think it was great. It did seem like a story that's been told before. Um, I thought that the entire film was going to be this kid trying to get into Yale, but at least they moved forward. I I was glad to see that the story wasn't just about that, that like it got into his older years and, you know, uh, but I I thought that with the writing, you're right visually, there was nothing really that Clooney did that did, but I thought that there was a bunch of one-liners, a bunch of quotable, it was was like a quotable movie. I thought it was well-written, a lot of great music. A lot of classic music, um, but I Steely I, I, Dan at the end, right? Do it again. Yes. Yeah, dance it in the moonlight. It's your thing. Like it was just classic, like nice. It fit the vibe for the, for what they were going for. I thought there there was some uh, com- the the use of cutting at the end of scenes for comedic effect was used a few times that I I really enjoy. Where like they do a hard cut on like a funny moment, and then it's just like a, like I just I don't know what that's called. I don't know the lingo, but I uh, no, are you I, kidding? I, you just impressed me by saying cutting. You could have said editing, but you went with cutting, which yeah, is yeah. even more specific film terms kind of I like how they back. cut yeah but I'm with you uh, when, you had me at Christopher Lloyd by the way when I saw his oh. head emerge from the uh, trailer I was like okay I think I'm going to be in on this movie but you're right I see uh, Ben Affleck getting nominated for sure because he it was just like he was kind of like I don't give a shit but also I'm like really caring at the same time like he had a nice like balance to him you know, because sometimes those are tough characters to pull off where it's like, I'm a, I'm, I own a bar but I'm also actually going to give you some good life information here Right, you might just think I'm just some borrower, but look at all these books I got. Okay, I've yeah. read like three thirty thousand books. Like, yeah. dude, I'm smarter than you think. You gotta By watch way, your stashies. You gotta watch your stashies. stashies. You know, like there's, I mean. Anthony Lane of the New Yorker, by the way, the gist of the critical response has been that the tender bar follows a well-worn path. Fair enough, but is that such a sin? And John Anderson of Wall Street Journal, the people are so familiar and the storyline so recycled that we viewers reflexively fill in the copious blanks in both narrative and atmosphere. But it's like bringing our own mortar to the filmmaker's collection of bricks. I mentioned earlier how much I love Ty Burr. He writes this watch list, which Chris, you know, stole a blue yeah, from earlier. Big fan. He, he's, got a, <laughs> he's got a great Affleck story in here. I've got to read. So he's, he's, he, loves, he loves Affleck's performance, kind of like me. I think he gave it two and a half stars. But as I said in that blurb, he loved him. I'll read more about it. The part's a perfect fit because Charlie is smart enough to see how life could have gone for him while turning the fact it didn't into a kind of enlightened blue-collar acceptance. He's the most well-read guy in the bar, and he's the guy who owns the bar. Yeah. But he's still a guy in a bar. And his performance yeah. captures both the man's pride and his understanding of waste. Yeah, that's good. You ever fucked in a Volvo? <laughs> what a way to just blow <laughs> things up when you're trying to meet your girlfriend's parents. <laughs> that huh? was one of those ones where they went from him asking that to just like cut real fast to him walking, like out, like as if like, okay, that was the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you. That's how you drop the mic. A final tale from Ty Burr. I interviewed Affleck back in 2012 during the press tour for Argo, the film about the Iranian hostage crisis that he directed and starred in. As a representative of the region's paper of record, I was able to have a one-on-one with him in a hotel meeting room while the rest of the journalists had a group roundtable. This was Boston, remember, his hometown, where impressions are important, where you should never, ever think you're better than you are. With me, the Boston Globe reporter, Affleck was thoughtful, erudite, and humble, letting me know he'd majored in Middle Eastern studies in college, but also making clear he'd never graduated. With the roundtable journalist, I found out later he was slouchy and profane, swearing up a storm, acting like one of the guys. He was acting, in other words. He was insecure. He wanted to be who he thought we wanted him to be. That need to be liked lies behind the false front of every smiling celebrity. Indeed, it's the subtext of fame itself. Somehow with Affleck, it became the text. The mask most stars keep firmly fixed in place on him keeps slipping, which makes some people nervous and a lot of people scornful. Somehow, 
It just makes me like him more. As a celebrity, Ben Affleck is not great. We've seen him be an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole issue with Benifer, he's back with J-Lo now, like Jennifer Garner, Bill Sarver. Like, he ended up being a good actor who won an Academy Award for writing Good Will Hunting to make a ton of bad movies. But then he was a great director, and Argo won Best Director. Like His career, phenomenal in terms of the highs and lows he's had. It is a roller coaster. I, I can't try to think of like a comparable, like an actor that's had a similar path. It's been all over the place. But I think he's found, I've, I've seen him interviewed. He's, I think he's found, he's in a good place in his life now. Like He's not yeah. drinking anymore. He's He's uh, being a good parent. Like I may not have ended well with Jennifer Gardner, but I think they're co-parenting. So it's yes. he seems to be in a better place now. And I, I li I've always kind of liked Ben Affleck, so I'm happy for him. I've always liked him too. I feel like especially you and me, if we hung out with Ben Affleck, he'd like us. Exactly. Big sports guy, likes to gamble. He used to yeah. like to get after it. But I think he would. we would just hang out and talk baseball. Yeah. Like I think he would yeah, generally yeah. be a good guy and a good guy to hang out with. Um, that is the review there of that film. A couple more here. The Lost Daughter, which is currently available on Netflix. Story of a mother on vacation on a beach who can't escape the demons of her past. Slow to befriend another family led by the young mom, Dakota Johnson. She inexplicably steals that mother's doll. The movie undercuts lots of flashbacks to Jesse Buckley as the young mother. So playing Olivia Coleman as a young mom, including a drop-your-jaw scene where she masturbates in front of her computer before her two young daughters barge in and interrupt her. Coleman is a talented actress, and her scenes of burrowed grief showcase why she's destined to be nominated for Best Actress Academy Award. But I found the movie to be underwhelming, and the climax is a genuine disappointment. Two Maple Leafs, currently available on Netflix. If a film is called The Lost Daughter, you're going to say, well, what happened? How did she get lost? Has she been found? Those simple questions, I will tell you, are disappointing. It's available on Netflix. I can't imagine you sitting through The Lost Daughter. The, the funny thing is, is this morning, before we were recording, I was like, I have a window here. I want to watch one of these movies. I haven't con uh, contributed shit to this podcast all year. So I was like, I need to come like with a movie scene today. I turned on that one because to me, Netflix, of all those things, is like the easiest thing to get to. So I was like, throw it on. I watched the very first scene where she's just walking out onto the beach and she like falls onto the ground, a very dark scene. And I just was like, yeah. you know what? I think I'm going to watch The Tender Bar. <laughs> I yeah, watched literally the very first minute and I was like, I don't want, I can't do this for two hours. I'm going to watch The Tender Bar. <laughs> and I switched it to that one. Very wise choice by you. I had a professor back in, in film history at Ryerson where I went to college, and he goes, any movie, they got to grab you within 10 minutes. If yeah. they are not grabbing you in 10 minutes, there's no reason to keep watching. And I go, uh, there's got to be a couple along the way. Like maybe Lawrence of Arabia, it's a three-hour, 40-minute movie. It takes a little while. He goes, 10 minutes. If it doesn't grab you in 10 minutes, go do something else. I think huh? it's a pretty good rule of thumb. I like and that. For Chris Cody, it's one minute. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one more for you. Swan Song, the gloriously talented Mahershala Ali, two-time Academy Award winner. He shines in dual roles in the futuristic film on Apple+. Plus. A dying man is given a choice by a kindly Glenn Close. Since his days are numbered on Earth, allow a complete replica to take his place. The catch is he can't tell his wife and son that his time on Earth is expiring and he's being replaced. The reliably brilliant Ali, previous guest on Cinephile, allowed to dance along the acting spectrum, dignified and sad, raging with fire at his clone, and firmly imbued with a sense of peace and calm. It's one of his best performances. It's an excellent film. I give it three and a half Maple Leafs. If you knew you were dying, not to get morbid again, would you want a clone Chris Cody to take your place? Or would you be selfish and egotistical and say, no, if I'm out, Chris Cody's done? I've generally not been a big clone guy. I don't like someone to like represent me. Like, you know, I feel like I, I, I feel like I do okay on my own and I just don't know. Is he gonna be exactly me? Is he gonna say the same exact jokes? Exact replica. Me? Is he gonna be as quick as me? Like I guess Not as quick as you. <laughs> I love how like I have me as this like quick witty person. But uh um uh, okay, you know what? You've talked me into it. I'll do a clone. If I guess it's, <laughs> if I'm gonna be gone anyways, I mean shit. I mean Pretty soon Cinephile's gonna be the attack of the clones. It's like why not? Hey, <laughs> Your wife and daughter will be happy. Maybe maybe it's a, even a better version of Chris Cody. Who knows? We're yeah. pro-clone here. Talk, you um, mentioned a threesome earlier. I mean. Yeah, that's true. We, we, <laughs> and then the clone gets... It's a freaky clone. Uh, to review, The Tender Bar, Two and a Half Maple Leafs, Swan Song, Three and a Half Maple Leafs, The Lost Daughter, Two Maple Leafs. Those are your new films. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pleasure to be joined by Chris Mundy. He is the showrunner of Ozark. That's right. You all know and love the show. Friday, January 21st. It is the final season. It's being split into two parts. Part one comes out then. I believe seven episodes each. It's going to be awesome. Chris, uh, I guess this must feel like uh, Christmas Eve in some ways. This great, great show is finally coming to an end. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm glad it's finally going to get out there. We made it. We made it a while ago, or we wrote it a while ago. We just finished up filming in, in November, but. Uh, so it, uh, it just feels like I'm glad people can finally I'm glad people can finally see it. It's it's exciting. It's like sad and exciting all at once. Yeah, I want to go back to the beginning. As you said, writing it, being an executive producer. How did you first have involvement with Ozark? Um, I was working on a show uh, called Bloodline that was on Netflix. Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah, exactly. Key West show. I love that show. I love yeah, that show. show. Oh yeah, it was great. It was it was a really it was it was great. I wasn't running that show. I was just I was I was writing on it, but um. And they kind of came to me with it. And I said, oh, look, because the pilot had been written. Uh, Bill Dubuque wrote the pilot. I didn't write the pilot. And so uh, and they wanted me to think about taking it over or, or you know, running it because Bill lives in St. Louis and he does feature work. He, he doesn't work in TV. And I just couldn't do it. I said, like, thanks. It looks great. I'm finishing Bloodline. And it just kind of kept creeping back for months and months and months and uh, until finally I'd met Bill, I'd met Netflix, as I obviously already knew them. I'd met MRC, the studio. And they're like, well, why don't you take a meeting with Jason? And it's like, and suddenly it was getting close enough to um, to the deadline of when they, when they wanted me that I might be able to do it. Hmm. And as it turned out, Jason and I, our daughters were in school together, but we didn't know each other at all. So I basically said like, look, someone needs to tell him that I'm a face from grade school drop-off because it's going to be really weird. <laughs> If I walk into that meeting and uh, I was supposed to meet with him on like a Thursday and I'm dropping my daughter off. They were in third grade at the time, him and his daughter and mine. And I just get this tap on uh, on the shoulder and I turn around and we talked for like an hour and then we met the next day. And then that was just kind of it. Oh, that's great. That's a great story. I remember years ago when I had kids and my wife and I had moved, I was like, you know, it's hard to get new friends. Like, how do you get new friends? You're an adult. She goes, you'll become friends with the parents of your children's friends. Like, that's how these things work. <laughs> and for you, work has been created by the fact that, obviously, you're going to get the job anyways, but that, that so, association yeah. comes through as well. I know, it's very funny. And and luckily, our, our kids' school goes all the way to 12th grade. So luckily, luckily, he and I really have liked each other, and it's gone well, because otherwise, it would be... a uncomfortable for a lot of years well the other part i was going to say let's hope the daughters always get along like that, that's the other thing <laughs> exactly. imagine they're really close also they split apart like oh my god baby we got to figure this out this isn't good for either they've of actually us. become like really really close friends as, as it turns out oh that's awesome part of what is great about ozark chris is how good bateman is and the fact that he's yeah. an actor who listen i arrested development for the funniest shows of all time i love the show i love the fact that he's stretched in different ways like bad words was an example where he directed it showed a little bit of a, a meaner side of jason bateman but ozark is full this is a drama there's this there's no semblance of Jason Bateman, comedic star. This is a drama. This is a tragedy. Um, what is it about Jason, at least in your conversations with him, what did you get a sense of that he finds so attractive about the role? You know, I think initially he really thought of it so much as a director. Yeah. I mean, they offered, they came to him as, a, as an actor and he said, like, I'm willing to think about it as an actor if you'll consider, if you'll let me direct it. Because yeah. he, he's, he's a great director. Yeah. Um, and so... And then I think at first he was a little wary that it's too, it was too much like the Jason Bateman character. Like, you know, yeah. he's, he's, he always says he's, he's very good at being sort of like the audience, like the everyman and letting things bounce off him. But his timing comedically is so perfect, both in on film, but also just in real life. And I think he was worried about it being almost like too easy and just that. Um, and so he wanted to make sure he could stretch it and be a stretch like his director side and then make his director side push the actor in him to 
to do more dramatic stuff. You know, um, it's been, it's been, I've kind of watched it seamlessly happen and he's great at both. Yeah, he's a guy that definitely is showing his range in this show. Uh, I've talked to Will and Ed a couple of times in this podcast. Of course, he and Bateman are close friends. Uh, Will's a big sports fan. Uh, he's a huge Toronto Maple Leafs fan, loves soccer. Bateman, of course, diehard Dodgers fan. The funniest, yeah, the funniest anecdote that Will told me, I go, give me something about Bateman. He goes, listen, he's got two daughters. He's super busy. He's not just a star in Ozark. He's a director. He cares about it. Because that guy loves the Dodgers so much. He gets up at 5 a.m. He's DVR the game. He watches the game before he goes to work. I said, that's not true. because it's absolutely true. Can you confirm? It's totally but, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's totally true. He watches the game. He'll watch them sometimes on like time and a half. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, like the speed, depending on when I get there yeah. and like go through. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, but he he does. He's like it's 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 crazy. I love when people are that passionate about sports. I can just imagine you're shooting in Atlanta or whatever. He's like, guys, guys, got to wrap up here, okay? The game's starting soon here. Like, oh, that takes forever. It's fine. We called the set at like six in the morning, and like our uh, and our locations, like where the birdhouse and the Langmore trailers and all that is. That's like 45 minutes to an hour north of the city. So like, you know, he's got to leave at like five in the morning. It's like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. The passion. Um, the whole cast is great. Let's talk a little bit about Laura Linney. I just watched that great film, The Savages, because it's the 15th anniversary. Uh, yeah. Her and Philip Seymour Hoffman. I love that film. It's on HBO right now. So they're, they're re-airing it. And for those who haven't seen it, it's a wonderful film. It's about um, two, a brother and a sister dealing with the fact their father's dying, putting him in a nursing home. But it just reminded me how much I love Laura Linney. And she did those great independent films. You Can Count On Me is another good one. But Ozark has been a, such a great role for her. Just talk a little bit about Laura Linney, writing for her, working with her. What's that been like? I mean, I, I think that this sounds like something you just say, and it's not, it's not an exaggeration at all, is the day Laura agreed to sign on, which was a real leap of faith on her part, because um, there wasn't, you didn't know what that character would be or could be, and she needed to trust me, and she needed to trust Jason, um, and, and thank God she did, but the, de- the day she signed on kind of put this, like, terror in all of us, like, oh, we've got to be good enough to justify Laura being in the show. You know, um, so I think just that she brings a level of of preparedness. Like she, she watches the way she breaks down a script is like she's taught all the other actors on the show the way she breaks down a, a, a script. She reads the say, the script every morning before she goes to shoot. Not the not the day's scenes, but like the whole thing just to contextualize. She's so thorough, and yet. She's like this incredibly like nice, giving, easygoing person. It's not like she's not one of those people that stays in character and like, you know, brushes people off. So I just think the combo book, like her being a presence on set that is nothing but positive and giving to everyone, but then also showing up with like your A game. You can't, you know, you can't play like crap if Michael Jordan's on your team he won't you know it's 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 peer pressure so i I just think it ups everybody's level um obviously all the scenes of her and bateman are great just the the fact the bird family is getting in deep getting in deep but then you add the brother and i mean it was such a different uh i don't say slate of ham but just a different evolution in her character the scene where she's going to give her brother up i mean that that's as good as screen acting gets tell me everything about that i don't know if you wrote that episode were you on set that day tell me everything I did not write that episode. Mickey Johnson wrote that episode and she wrote the hell out of it. Um, we obviously all broke it together, but um, I think it's, I think it's, as, I think that episode is as good as anything we've ever done. There's a scene of them in the car together at, their, at the, the, the big parking lot where they stayed overnight, where they just talk about the life and the future too. That's just like devastating. Um, and then that scene, obviously in the diner. And then when she gives him up, I think, um, you know, she brings so many different dimensions to it, to it all. So in one way you're trying, you, you actually understand she's doing this terrible thing, obviously. She's doing the worst thing that anybody could ever do. And, and the reverberations from that carry on for the rest of the show and all through season four, both parts. Um, and yet in that moment, because you've watched it all and you've watched her, you feel so sorry for her. I mean, and how, how, do you, how does someone pull that off, right? Um, so, so I wasn't on set the day we did that, but I remember the first time I watched it in the editing room, it was just me and, and, and Vix Patel, our, one of our editors, and we watched it. He put the lights back on in the room and I was bawling, crying. And he just looked at me and goes like, right. And I'm like, yeah, it's just, it's just, just stunning. And, and, and from there you get to build off that. 
everything we built the way we edited the final episode, which I wrote, was based on her performance in that scene, basically, you know? Um, so suddenly it's like a gift that keeps on giving. You're not the only one who was teary-eyed. I remember watching it being choked up with my wife. Like, oh my God, it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's as good as acting gets. And uh, thank you for sharing those personal remembrances of it. Julia Garner. I remember her sharing about the show and they go, okay, it's kind of like when you go to a movie and you go, okay, I'm seeing it for Bateman and Linney, but I walk out and go, how about that Julia Garner? Like, she just steals the show. And I'm like, I think it's one of those characters, Chris, it could go wrong because you could go, all right, tough tacking, sassy, not going to take any shit, right? Straight out of His Girl Friday. But she has different elements to it, and there is different pathos as well. I just love what she's done with it and the way you guys have written that character. Talk about the evolution of what Julia's done with that role. Yeah, and I, I've said this before, so I apologize for repeating myself, but like when we were in the writer's room, like that character was our favorite character to talk about. Hmm. Um and it just kept growing. We just, we just became in love with her. This was before Julia was cast. And uh, and I didn't know Julia's work. So um, the first time I ever saw Julia was in the in her audition. Uh, and first time I ever met her was like in a room when she read. And uh, so for us, if, if, if whoever played Ruth hadn't been really good, it just would have been devastating because we've kind of felt like this to me is like bringing out the heart of this place. And then Julia was so much better than we ever could have even imagined. And the second you saw her on screen, it was just like, it did. It was like, it was kind of like everything like went fuzzy and she got bright and you just kept, and you, you watched her. And uh, so it was so rewarding just on a writing level to get to know we could do that. And then, and then it really became like, okay, how do we, the show instantly went from being Jason and Laura to Jason, Laura, and Julia in the way we thought about it. And we always thought about it in terms of classes and, and the birds being these sort of like this invasive species that came in and then what happens to the people in, in the class of the Langmores. And so um, suddenly we she embodied that so much and she's so tough, but Julia plays it with this sadness underneath. And so like that combination is even when she's, you know, talking tough, you, you you feel insecurity and pain too. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not this, this one dimensional character. It's, it's really great. And then, and then the way we write her, you can, you can find her every time I got back to a new season, cause I'll always write the first episode of the season. You instantly can write Ruth. So we like, you just fall into the rhythm of it and you hear Ju like what Julia made and you can just write it. You know, it's, it's just, it's just instantly there. It reminds me when I've talked to other showrunners, like David Chase has said, the character we all love writing the Sopranos was uncle junior. Because he goes, Junior just had one line after one liner. So it's like, I can imagine for you guys, you're okay, Ruth is one that's fun we can dive into. And that totally makes sense to me. That it, Once you hear the character's voice and you see her, it makes it even more easier to kind of to transcribe and put the character in that direction. Yeah, and it's funny. It's when we got new writers, everyone would make the mistake first of writing her kind of like um, yokel-like. Mm. But like she's not at all. Like it, it's, 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 it's a subtle difference. But I mean, everyone always eventually like clicked into it right away. But like, but it, it's not that there's just like a directness and a harshness, but like, you know, it's like that combination. It's the, why she listens to like classic hip hop at the same time. She's like living in a trailer in Missouri. You know? <laughs> exactly. Um, as a showrunner, as a writer, executive producer, you're coming up with these scripts. Okay. The bird family's getting in deep. They're getting painted in a corner. They got to get out of it. Don't, you don't tell me specifics, but are there times that there have been ideas banded about and you go, okay, that might be going a little bit too far. We're going to reel that back in. There's a really great sense of realism on the show and suspense, but all of it seems genuine. Is there a time that you guys have said, okay, I don't think that left turn is going to work. I no, I'm sure there are, uh, but, um, but no, no big ones that, that, that kind, uh, you know, there's probably stuff that like just instantly in the room, we were just like, no, 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 no. Right. Um, but, but I found that when, when we had th debates about big swings, there was a one in season one where whether or not the, uh, Marty would give the baby to Darlene. Uh, I mean, we went round and round about that. And, and the, uh, there are people in the room you know, who I love who are just like, no one will ever watch a show again or ever, everyone will hate him so much if he gives that baby away. Yeah. Um, and we did it. And, um, and you know, we knew Wendy was gonna, we knew Wendy was gonna have Ben killed. And, uh, but it's like, well, will anyone ever look, look at her the same again? I think, and I, and I, I think we, every time we've pushed it, I think we've succeeded at least by our standards. Um, and, and, and a lot of that is just a testament, not to us as writers, it's really a testament to the actors because they humanize those people so much 
that, uh, you know, I, I use Jason as the, the, the perfect example. It's the show started and the defining act of it, this terrible thing that had happened, it was 10 years before, like when he decided he'd sign on with the devil. And I think um, you didn't watch him evolve to it. He was just already, and if Jason wasn't so naturally likable, people never would have gone with him from day one. And he just is. So we had that, we, we, we had already banked that, you know? And, uh, and I, think, I think some of that happens with, with how good Laura is, how, how good Jason is, how good Julia is. I mean, everybody across the board, we, we've been super lucky. We've been immersed in this golden age of television, and so much of it is men behaving badly, whether it's The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or Mad Men, and your show is a great extension of that. And it's not just men behaving badly, it's women as well, and Wendy and Ruth and all the rest of it. It's funny because, you know, we're in a tough time right now. We all know that, and yet the show is so great. And this goes against the theory that you want escapist entertainment. Like, obviously, I went and saw and loved West Side Story with my wife because it's a beautiful musical, and Spielberg's with a throwback and all the rest of it. But this show is so gritty and uh, realistic, it still has such a natural and loyal following to it. What do you think about this, this terrain, the fact that you guys have taken, like I said, just the men behaving badly, you know, film noir, gritty yokels, et cetera, and you've been able to subvert the genre and yet extend upon it? Um, you know, in my mind, I know, I know that the crime part of it is the engine that keeps, keeps it going, and it's the, the, the bells and whistles of it, um, all of which I love. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that stuff. But really, we think about it as a show about a marriage and a show about a family, and I think that is... I think that's the thing. I think at, at, at its heart, we try really hard to have something recognizable about your own marriage, something recognizable about your own family. Obviously, <laughs> you know, hopefully, you know, 99.9% .9 of our viewers aren't doing the things the birds are doing, but- um, A little embezzling on the side, Chris. We've all done that. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, I do, but I do think that there's this, there's, there's this, um, there's this humanity inside inside that. Um, and then we're able to write it just the tiniest bit, arches, it's arches even too strong a word, but just the tiniest bit elevated because we know we're gonna act it and direct it more like tethered to the ground. And I think that that balance makes it fun at the same time it's dark. And and the family, even though they're doing bad things and being terrible parents, there's like a love inside that that you kind of recognize. And, Whatever that fusion is, I think is, um, you know, I don't think it's something that's necessarily brand new or necessarily something that we're the only people that have ever done. But I think that quality is what people, what makes people appreciate it. Absolutely. It's a family drama at heart. Like you said, the criminal aspect is an element of it. A couple more, I'll let you, let you get out of here. Criminal Minds. I got to ask you about Joe Montana because I love Joe Montana. I love him because I love Mammoth. So all those early, you know, Speed the Plow and Glenn Gray, Glenn Ross on Broadway. Same, yeah, same. give me some stuff on Joe Montana. I love that guy. That guy is just like everything you would expect him to be and think he was. I mean, and honestly, he stepped on the show in a really tough situation because Mandy had left right. and, and, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. He came in and he just, he would, he would show up to work. He would be a gentleman. Every, he'd be super prepared, but also the nicest guy. And then all he wanted to do, he and his wife had a restaurant called Taste Chicago in the Valley here in, uh, that just sold like Chicago, it's like deep dish pizza, you know, uh, brats and things like that. He wanted to do his work, be awesome to everybody, and then go to Taste Chicago with his wife, like, you know, it, 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 in the best possible way. Like he, the, uh, the other thing I remember, we did, a, um, we did an episode where we, uh, we filmed on the, uh, in the yard at San Quentin. And there's a thousand prisoners out there that are just real prisoners. And um, you know, like I talked to a guard, this one guard was talking to a guy and the three of us started talking and we all chatted and the guy walked away and the guard was like, he murdered his sister. And I was like, oh, interesting. Um, but there are only there were only two guards on the whole uh, in, you know on the grounds because they don't want too many down there. There's people up on the wall. So it was kind of scary when you first walked out, walked out there and everyone, no one really knew what to do and was kind of huddled. And Joe just walked over, like still had his trend here, like dressed in character, he had a, like a long black trench coat on and just started talking to a group of prisoners. And then everything was kind of okay. Wow. He just like literally just went over and like shot the shit with a group of guys and was just like, okay. And there, and there you go. 
I love that. Joe Montagna, cool guy from Chicago. Any situation, he's handled it. He's seen yeah. it before. Yeah. Last one for you. You worked for Rolling Stone. Is that right? For a number of years? What, what was yeah, that experience like? 11 years. That was the best gig. It was great. I was so spoiled. Um, uh, and it was also like, it, you know, I was there for pretty much all the 90s. So um, it was a great moment where I got to like, I'm a huge music head. And so, um, and it was a time where the music that would that was popular at the time actually was music that I cared about. You know, it was all the things that came out of punk rock and, you know, I got to go on the road with Nirvana when Nevermind came out wow. and I got it, um, you know, and things like that. So not only was I happy getting to write, but I, 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 I was at a certain place at a certain time that, um, that meant something to me too. So, so it was, it was really great. And, and once you leave that place, everyone I know that worked at Rolling Stone that leaves it still thinks of themselves as, part of that place. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's something that just, that gets inside you. And everyone I know that like, like I consider them all like coworkers, even the one I, ones I wasn't there with, you know, it's weird, but. Yeah, our boss, Sean Skipper, used to work at Rolling Stone for years before he went to oh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. So like Skipper's got stories for days. That's the biggest thing. Once I found he's a music guy, my favorite type of music, he's like reggae. I'm like, was not expecting reggae to be the answer. <laughs> I, would not, I would not, picturing John Skipper, that wasn't where I was gonna go either. I was like, I'm gonna go with jazz. He's like reggae. I'm like, okay, well, you surprised me on that one. Um, because you mentioned Nirvana, I grew up in the 90s. I was ages 12 to 21 in the 90s. So Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, you mentioned seeing Kurt Cobain. Top three concerts ever. Can you give me a top three? I'm sure Nirvana would be in that list. Yeah, uh, I saw Nirvana the night Nevermind came out, um, which is is hands down one of my top three. I saw The Replacements um, when they were touring on Tim uh, and Bob was still in the band uh, in, in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, at, at, which, at this place called The Living Room, which is just this hole. It was, the, it was just crazy. Um, and they were like, they're, they're drunken selves, but also it's still like good enough to play fantastic. Um, what's the, oh God, what, those are always my, those are the first two that always come to mind. Replacements, anybody, oh, that's good. I like anybody, that. Anybody, anybody says something. And then probably I saw a Pogue show on New Year's Eve once that was um, crazy just because the Pogues on New Year's Eve being upright was something and the crowd itself was so insane. So I, I probably those, but there's like, you know, there's hundreds more. Yeah, there's definitely good choices. I love it. Chris Mundy, he is the show winner, writer, executive producer of Ozark. Friday, January 21st is the final season. Part one is then, I believe, seven episodes each. Can't wait to dive in and see what happens to the Bird family. Uh, they all do a phenomenal job, the acting, the cast, and, of course, the writers like Chris. Uh, it's an awesome show, Chris. Congratulations on all your success. Oh, thanks. thanks for giving us a little bit of a few minutes with us. Yeah, yeah. I hope, I hope, you, I hope you like the season. All right, thanks so much to Chris Money, the showrunner of Ozark. Obviously, very popular show. Make sure you check it out. Old movie this week? How about Ted? I was kind of surprised to look up. It's the 10th anniversary. That film came out in 2012. It stars Mark Wahlberg, two-time guest on Cinephile, perfectly cast as a loutish Boston fella. The star, though, is a bear who is the antithesis of the lovable Teddy Ruxpin of yesteryear. He's horny, he's crass, and he's brought to life with the multi-talented polymath Seth MacFarlane. The reason I want to talk about Ted is I want to talk about Seth MacFarlane. I find the guy fascinating because, like me... He's got an old soul. Like, he loves the crooners. He loves Sinatra and Dean Martin, all that stuff. He's released a Christmas album. Yeah. Like, he has one of the best renditions I've ever heard of Baby It's Cold Outside. I listen to it all the time. Like, man, McFarlane, like, in a different <laughs> really? era. Oh, yeah, in a different era, he'd be like Michael Bublé. Like, McFarlane loves that stuff. <laughs> what? I'm sure. Look up Seth MacFarlane, like, lounge singer. Like, this I mean, guy's I can tell. I can hear his voice. I can picture him being a lounge yeah. singer. But it's just funny that you've got him being Michael Bublé. Good-looking guy. <laughs> clean cut. He's like Bublé. Like, McFarlane can do it. But... Kind of like Bob Saget and Adam Burke, he's got this dirty streak to him, so he wants to make movies about profane bears, and he's done a show in Family Guy, which is, I think, one of the great success stories. Whether or not you like the show or not, and I haven't watched it in years, to be honest. I used to really enjoy it when it first came out. But Family Guy was a show that was, like, off the radar, cult hit, canceled, brought back, and now I think it's been on for, like, 20 years. Like, I know The Simpsons is 30 years, whatever it is, but Family Guy alone, Seth MacFarlane gets such credit because he's voicing all these characters. Then there was whatever the hell, the American Dad spinoff. I mean, he's done some stuff that has not worked, obviously. He did that Western, which was a huge flop. But the fact that he was able to make Ted about a talking bear and make it fresh and funny, the film made, like, $150 million. It was one of the biggest hits of that summer. If you haven't seen Ted and you're a fan of Seth MacFarlane, go check it out. I'm sure you're a fan of the movie, Chris. 
I see this is interesting. I of all the big time comedies growing up, Ted, I would put in this category, and I, of all of them, I'm not. Uh, it was a little too much for me with the bear. Like, you know, I, I, there's funny moments. There's great liners, classic Seth MacFarlane, like obscure pop culture references. Yes. And I'm a, and I'm a fan of Family Guy, but it's just it's hard for me when I hear that voice. I just think of Family Guy. So it was a little difficult for me to love the movie. Uh, it seems like a movie would be right up my alley. Never a big Mark Wahlberg guy for some reason. I don't think he's like real believable in a lot of things. He just seems like a, you know, not a lot of range there. But I yes. I it was just overall, I, I laughed at parts. I don't hate it, but uh, believe it or not, not a not a huge fan of Ted, if I'm being All honest. Right, no, I, listen, I like the contrarian opinion because I, I pick out the old movie. If it's a comedy, I'm like, oh, Chris will be into this. So I'm yeah. like, All right, something about Mary, 40-year-old version. I'm like, oh, Ted. So I'm, I am, tell you what, Chris Cody's surprised. I'm trying to throw he a curveball. Look at me throwing a curveball. You used ball. cutting rather than saying editing. You don't <laughs> care for Ted. I mean, my man is bringing something new here. I said range when talking about Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. You didn't just go, I don't think he's that good. You're like, I'm not really sure about his range. I'm like, hmm, that is something I would say. I'm not sure about his range. He does often appear to be playing himself, a Boston yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, all right. How about the reviews of Ted? I have not gone way back to check. I really enjoyed it at the time. I haven't seen it multiple times. Ted 2, let's be honest, in fairness to Chris, Ted 2 is something nobody needed to see, but unfortunately some of us had to sit through. That was definitely not great. Another example of a, a director cashing in. Donald Clark of Irish Times. There's just enough mileage in the game to keep the movie spluttering through an energetic series of pop cultural references, and broadly staged orgies of profanity. David Sexton of London Evening Standard, laughter doesn't lie. I loved Ted and found it irresistibly funny and hugely enjoyable. And Violet Luca, Film Comment Magazine, it is a film that seems to have an endless middle. That's a good way of chopping it up. A few more reviews here and we'll say goodbye. The Lost Daughter, this was from John's, oh, excuse me, Stephen Romay of The Australian. This is a, a fine, unsettling film about the cost of the choices we make. Okay, and Alyssa <laughs> Wilkinson of Vox, the end is deeply ambiguous, neither punishing nor condoning its character's behavior. It simply asks us to sit with them, to pay them the respect of attention, and learn something about ourselves in the process. See, that's like that classic pompous film criticism. Like, what are you actually saying? Did you like it or did you not like it? They're just using a bunch of words. Uh, and lastly, Swan Song. Carrie Darling of Houston Chronicle, it's Ali's understated performance as both Cameron and the clone that makes Swan Song work. And Leah Greenblatt, I really like her, by the way, Entertainment Weekly, without much dramatic tension beyond the will he or won't he of Cameron's final choice, the film feels oddly inert. A melancholic iPhone ad stretched to feature length. Ouch! Not a fan of Swan Song. So once again, next week on Cinephile, the tragedy of Macbeth, Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand. Chris might think they're joining, but I promise you, well, you never know these things. I'll see you at the movie. Thank you.